0: Welcome to the Being Well podcast. I'm Jan Orman. In this podcast series, we've invited people we know and admire to tell you their stories. My name's Paula Cottervich. So my name is Craig Sample. Evie Rader. Molly Shorthouse. My name's Percy Knight. I was a career detective in the New South Wales Police Force. I identify as a trans woman. I am a remote doctor in East Arnhem Land. These are people who may not have made the headlines, but whose stories are just as worthy of your attention as those you hear about in the media. Living with cancer. I was struggling with PTSD for eight or nine years. I just had a lot of fear. I was well and truly burnt out. These are people who have flourished and met life's challenges while managing their social and emotional well-being. Uh, my career now. Uh, is as a mental health advocate and educator. led a team that that negotiated a $22 million native title. Definitely taught me in my life a lot of persistence and given me a lot of strength. We're hoping you'll find something in these stories to inspire you, whatever your situation right now. I first met Shay a couple of years ago when we were colleagues with officers on the same corridor of Black Dog Institute. She struck me as an intelligent, articulate, and enthusiastic young woman with lots of energy and ideas. I knew she was working to revamp our bite back site, and that sometimes she was one of our lived experience presenters, but beyond that, I knew nothing. She left soon afterwards to become a worker in a children's shelter, as far as I knew. Then, when we recorded this podcast, I heard the rest of her jaw-dropping story. Shay's story is inspiring, but it's also shocking. Take care of yourself as you listen. What you'll hear is the story of a young woman determined to make a difference to the lives of kids like she was and to the system. Just a word of warning, this podcast contains references to suicide and to child abuse.
1: Um, So I was born and raised in Sydney I spent uh, the majority of my time growing up on the lower north shore of Sydney. Um, My story of living with mental illness, I guess, goes back to my birth. Um, So my mum was quite young when she had me. She was 17. My father was 32 and he was uh, fresh out of jail for armed robbery So they had quite a tumultuous relationship, um, an abusive relationship. And when I was two years old, my mum and dad split up and they um, went through the process of family law and my dad won full custody of me. So my mum, she was diagnosed um, and she was quite unwell um, and she's still living with the diagnosis today. Um, in quite an active state. Um, So I was raised by my dad um, and my dad abused me until I was 14 uh, when I ran away and I reported the abuse. So unfortunately uh, when they investigated um, my allegations it was determined that I was uh, making them up. And that was when I first made an attempt on my own life. I was 14 years of age. Um, and looking back now, I think, you know, I, I'd actually been experiencing depression and anxiety for a long time. Um, even quite young in my childhood, I can remember being about five or six and experiencing suicidal ideation. Um, and no doubt that's a result of the environment that I was in and my genetics um, with what my mum has experienced. And a lot of the people in my family do have diagnoses as well. Um, But, yeah, when when I was 14, I did make that first attempt on my own life and I received my initial diagnoses of depression and I just promptly ignored it. I didn't do anything about it. Um, I was quite petrified, I guess, because of my lack of education and through what my father had reinforced in me that, you know, I would turn out like my mum. And I found my mum quite scary because I didn't understand what she was going through and I didn't want to open up that door into my world, so... I didn't actually end up doing anything about my diagnoses until I was about 21. From 14 to 21, I tried to go to school. Uh, The majority of Year 9 I actually spent out of school because that was the year that I had had made the attempt and had made the allegations. So I was in a refuge um, after my attempt Um, I was picked up by my social worker and I was um, taken to a refuge and they were very clear that, you know, there was only a three-month limit. I felt throughout my whole experience in the system, I'm doing finger things, um, that I really wasn't believed by anybody including the people in the refuge. Um, except for one particular man who is the reason why I I guess I do what I do. Um, But, yeah, after that three months was up, I was actually kicked out of the refuge because some other girls in the refuge planted um, some scissors underneath my mattress and told the staff that I was self-harming. And so my room got stripped and they found the scissors and didn't, Believe me, Um, and so I I was kicked out, and I was put back into the care of my dad. Um, So I lived with dad for probably six months, maybe. He was hardly present um, because he had a he had it just tended to happen when he had a partner, is that he wouldn't really be around much. He would be with his with his girlfriend at wherever they were. So during that six months, I was very much just alone in the house actually really sucked I changed schools um, and I completed year 10 woo um and then I changed schools again and I'd moved out of home by this point I'd moved out when I was 15 and was living in a share house um with two um grown adults who who had their own abusive relationship so it wasn't the best environment for me um So I wasn't going to school. I was doing drugs, um, not working, working a casual job every now and then and spending the majority of my time in bed actually, watching Stargate, which is why I have a Stargate tattoo on the back of my neck because they, funnily enough, they really, really got me through my mates (laughs) on Stargate. (laughs) And then I, I moved into this, I got my own unit when I was 18 because I could finally sign a lease and I moved into this studio apartment and there was this guy that lived downstairs and um, he played the guitar So and he had a man bun so I was instantly attracted to him. It didn't matter, nothing else mattered. He had those two elements. Um... unfortunately um you really should focus on more than just playing the guitar and the man bun when you get into a relationship with someone I highly recommend doing that (laughs) um so you know it ended up being a little bit I guess of the controlling somewhat emotionally abusive relationship I don't think that anyone realized what was happening when it was happening but that's how it turned out to be anyway, we shared the same drug addiction um I remember on like the fir- one of the first days that I went down to see him I actually had a psych appointment that day um and I remember going downstairs to see him and I was like I'm going off to to this first psych appointment and he was like why it's like I th- I think that I have depression He was like, no, you don't. It's all in your head, which is correct because um, of where the the brain is located um, inside your skull, which is in your head. (laughs) Um, But, um, you know, I unfortunately was like, yeah, he's right, you know, because I, I was already so closed off and petrified of opening that door up. So I was like, yeah, he's right. I went to the appointment. I hardly even remember it because I was so not invested and, um, and then let that kind of drift away. And so it got a, a whole bunch worse. It got really, really bad. Um, I, I got to the point where I couldn't leave the house anymore. I developed agoraphobia. My anxiety levels were so high. If I did go outside, I just remember being so focused on my stride, the way that, like, I held my gait, the way that I moved my legs and my arms because I I felt like I wasn't doing it right and that everybody was looking at me and being like, you're not walking right. Like, I just... I would have to, if I had to leave the house, I would have to wear, even if my phone was dead, I'd have to wear earphones and I'd have to wear sunglasses so that I didn't have to hear anything and nobody could see my eyes. That helped somehow. Um, I ended up developing an eating disorder during that time as well and I think that that really was to just kind of gain back some sort of sense of, control over time though I have you know understood that I really do have eating issues um but yeah I ended up you know getting to a point where I was quite unhealthy and constantly shaking um and people were noticing like if I handed someone a piece of paper it was like flitting in their face wildly (laughs) Um, so yeah I'm gonna have a glass of water Do you have any more questions before we talk about the happy stuff? When I was 21, um, two of my friends got engaged and it was really big deal I hadn't seen my group of friends for three years if if I had it very sporadically um and they had an engagement party I was invited um and I thought I really 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 have to go to this so I put in a lot of effort into finding a dress to wear because you know my anxiety was like you have to be present perfectly and show up perfectly um and I'm sure I, I did look pretty, but I, I showed up and I actually looked really sick. I look at photos of, um, of it now and I see a girl that her skin is almost translucent because she's not going outside. She's so pale and so thin. Um, I looked really unwell and I think that really scared my friends. They didn't realise, you know, very common i guess for some people to get into a relationship and be like see your friends i'm off i've found my my one and i'm going to spend all my time with them now and i think that that's just what they assumed happened because i wasn't letting them know what was going on but they saw me and they they realized and and i had such a good time that day I was filled with anxiety. I hardly spoke to anybody except for one particular friend who came and sat next to me on the bench because they could just tell that I was like, ah, like, group of people, friends I haven't seen in three years, what am I doing here? Um, and, and you know, they just, they just hung out with me for the day, made me feel safe. Um, and I went home and I said to my boyfriend, I want to quit the drugs, and I wanna see my friends again. And he was like, "Well, then I guess it's not gonna work." <laughs> um, so we split up. I won, um, and um, my friends really started to push me in the direction of actually going to a doctor. And, and seeking some support. Um, I was lucky enough to have friends that had already received their own diagnoses. They were on medication. It was something that was becoming quite normalized in my world. I was hanging out a lot more with my friends. Um, you know, they were inviting me out to places. They were coming into my house and cooking dinner, making sure that, you know, I was getting back on my feet. And so I did book in and I saw a GP and they, you know, it, it scared the crap out of me. They started talking about benzodiazepine, uh, all of this sort of stuff that I was like, I just don't, I don't want any of this. Again, immediately my mum that I was thinking of um, petrified that, you know, they were talking about drug names that I had remembered and and I was just like I'm I'm so... I don't, I don't I don't. want this. Um, and then so somebody just told me, see a different doctor. And I was like, oh, my goodness, <laughs> what? <laughs> That's an option. <laughs> I, I just felt so, honestly, I felt so stuck in that moment. I was like, oh, I can see a different one. And so I did see a different one. And then I felt really empowered and I was like, I can see a different one again. So I actually it wasn't until my fourth one that I saw and I sat down and this this GP, I guess they just, they were really good at what they did because they looked at me and I reckon what went through their head was, okay, this girl reckons she knows what's going on, so let's just let her talk. And so I got to be like, so this is, you know, what I think is happening and this is what diagnosis I've diagnosed myself with and, and blah, blah, blah. Um, but they were so respectful and they educated me about what I was talking about and what they might think. And then they were like, mental health care plan. We need to get you in to see a psychologist. Let's start with a psychologist and a psychiatrist. You know, you're petrified of medication. That's okay. We don't need to start it right now. Go do some talk therapy first. Um, And so that's where my journey really started. And then the biggest thing also... To be honest, that this GP said to me was, What do you what's your life? What are you doing in your life? And and it always comes back down to the the healthy baseline. And I'll always remember you need to eat well, you need to sleep well, you need to exercise, you need to connect, you need to have goals. And so those were the things that I started to work on. And I started to work on my eating, I started to try to work on my sleeping. My sleeping's always sucked, but you try. Um, I started hanging out with my friends, a whole bunch. It was a really fun time in my life, um, reconnecting with friends and just just living again as a young person that did not leave their house between eighteen and twenty one. Yeah, like really, really fun time to be back out there. Um, and so, and I also enrolled in uni um, to try to give myself, you know, some goals, some direction. So about six months into CBT um, and with my, with my psychologist, um, we started to trial some different medications because I still just wasn't really getting there. Things had improved for me. I felt like I was living more, but I still had constant dread, constant anxiety and the overwhelming feeling of not wanting to exist. It was just always there. Um, it didn't go away. Um, it got easier to manage a little bit, but it was always there. And so, um, yeah, know, started to trial different medications. Um, and that was a hard period because I've probably gone through Through that period of 18 months, I probably went through three to four different medication changes, Um, and since then um, it's been a a bit easier. I've only gone through maybe two or three. Um, I'm 29 now, so my journey has been about eight years. Um, When I was – so things started to – Funnily enough, I'm going to go on a bit of a love fest now. Things started to really, really improve for me once I started volunteering with Black Dog. Um, So one day I was at work, I was on Facebook, (laughs) sorry, Um, and an ad came up from the Black Dog Institute for volunteer presenters I had already been trying to look into volunteer stuff because I didn't know how I was going to be able to get my foot into the door of, you know, working with people. I didn't have any experience. And so the algorithms worked and they they showed me Black Dog and I remember applying and I got this call from a girl named Sarah and, um, and I was at the pub <laughs> and I had to run off to a fire escape and um, thankfully, uh, you know, I was sober and... Mm-hmm. And then I got in and, and then I went to training and I had a probably the longest panic attack I've ever had in my life on the first day. I was sitting in this room with a bunch of people with lived experience and I was like, everyone's so much more confident than I am. And, and it was like, it was this moment of like, oh, my gosh. And I had to really battle these thoughts of see how much better everyone else is. Than you and they've got lived experience they've dealt with the same stuff that you've dealt with so maybe maybe you really are just fundamentally flawed like and I couldn't I could hardly talk that day and I felt like I was going to say something wrong when I stood up and, I'm, and everyone's talking about how not everybody, but in my head, the way that I'm perceiving it, what I'm focusing on is just the people that are getting up being like, and now my life is great and everything's good. And, you know, and I've managed to be able to move on from it. And in my head, I'm like, and you haven't, have you Shay? You're, you're not cured. You're not cured. And I, and I had to stand up and I was like, I, I can't say that I'm cured. Like I live with this and this is going to be around for me forever, I think. And, and I learn how to deal with it, learn how to manage it. Um, and her baby and be so petrified and then everyone clapped and they were so nice to me and it was just so wonderful. And I had people come up to me afterwards and like, make sure I was okay. And, and I was like, man, like black dog really just from the get go, they just showed me they never, you know, you know what? They never doubted me. I told them my story and nobody went, is she telling the truth? They have never, ever, and they have looked at me and they've seen my value in the story that I've had. They've given me opportunity to be able to talk and I have found that that's when I found my purpose. That's when I found why, like, why I'm here. (laughs) Like, I'm here to, 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 I'm here to, I am here to get through so that I can show other people how to get through. That's why I'm here. I'm here to go through all this crap so that I can show that you can get through the crap and that we're here to support you and we got you. Like, And that's what Black Dog gave me. They gave me so much meaning and and I just started smashing out presentations <laughs> left, right and centre and, um, and applying for jobs at Black Dog. I would not stop applying every job that they had. I was like, I'm gonna apply for that one. I am not qualified for that one. I am not qualified for that one. But you know what? That lady in HR is gonna remember my name. <laughs> like, and yeah, then one day um, I got a call from Marion and she was like, we've got a job here. It was called at the time a digital content creator for the Bite Back program. And then yeah, went in for the, went in for the interview, um, and then I got the job, and I had the best two years ever. Um, so the Brightback program is something that I'm really really proud of. So over the course of eighteen months, we completely revamped this website. Um, we grew the subscription base. I think it was three or fourfold within the first month of it launching. And we started to go into schools and present uh, mental fitness presentations, which are still available now. So those were more interactive presentations where we could go into school and we could practice mindfulness. We could practice gratitude, get the kids laughing, um, get the kids sharing with each other, you know, what what they're grateful for. And then also talking about that sense of meaning and purpose, how to kind of create goals for yourself, how to figure out what it is that you do enjoy, what you're good at, what gives you that sense of being in the zone. So, with my own mental health, I, um, like I've said, I'm not cured. I, I, I do continue to seek treatment and I'm still going through um, managing my depression, my anxiety, my PTSD. So I um, do have my own medication regime. Um, I'm very grateful and proud to say that that's reduced recently. So I'm on track to perhaps a goal of one day being medication free, but if not, that's fine too. Um, And I see my psych every two weeks. Um, and I see my psychiatrist once every three months. I see my GP probably more than they would like. And I, I focus on my, I really that healthy baseline. I cannot stop talking about because I used to really not buy into it. I used to be like, it doesn't matter what I eat. It, it it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if I exercise. Like I didn't really see the connection between the body and the mind at all. Um, and so having that healthy baseline, making sure that I'm exercising, making sure I'm eating as well as I can, sleeping, connecting, working towards goals. Um, and like I've already said, talking about it with people I make sure that I'm being honest with the people around me. Yeah. Communication is one of the biggest things in, in my recovery. The thing that's always gotten me through, the thing that's always helped steer me and redirect me is the fact that I've been really lucky to have the best group of people around me. I met my friends when I was, um, 16 playing Guitar Hero in JB Hi-Fi. So these aren't schoolmates. These aren't people that like I grew up with. We just connected. They kicked my butt in (laughs) Guitar Hero, um, and you know, we traded email addresses to talk on MSN and they ended up being, they, they've they been there since, since my dad threw the beer bottle through the window at me and I left like they and I went to their house because they lived nearby. So they've seen me through everything and they understand, they know me through and through and I'm so lucky to have people that were somehow... Mentally health, like they just—they're just, they're literate when it comes to mental health. They may not know it all, but they knew that this was something. Um, and it—it it really was my friends supporting me that day, and the feeling that they gave me. When you've got good people around you, you feel safe and supported, and for me, I have not had that a lot, and when you get that feeling, you and you haven't you you grasp onto it. I think that's a people need people. we always do. We strive to be connected to other people and and that was a good feeling. and I always want to hold on to those. yeah sure. so when i was when I was within the the system, I guess the out of home care area, um, it made me feel like I w- I was the one at fault. that the reason why I was there was because I was a bad kid because I had done something wrong and I just felt like a burden to everybody. And I know that that's how the other young people in the refuge with me felt as well. We all felt like we were bad kids and that we were just, you know, screw-ups and we were all going to end up in jail and that's just the life that we had in store for us. So when I was living in the youth refuge, there was a particular youth worker um, and he is the reason why I do what I do. He, I specifically wanted to work in out-of-home care with young people because he was the only person in that house that treated me with respect. He showed me care. He would walk up to me and ask me how I was. He would acknowledge me when he came on shift. He treated me like a human being, but he also treated me like a kid that had trauma. And he was so good at his job. And I was really lucky, actually, about six years ago, I ran into him on Redfern train station. And so we went out for the day and we got to hang out and I got to tell him about the fact that you are the reason why I'm now with Black Dog, why I'm trying to get where I'm trying to go. And you you know what he did? He tried to help me. He tried to help me get a job so that I could get in. That never ending support, that, that never-ending persistence he's he's really is the reason when there's that glimmer when there's just one person in a world of darkness that is like hey I see you it's huge I remember actually just to kind of flit off to another story once my dad was screaming at me in in this grocery shopping center and he was he was being physical with me Um. And it was because I had pimples. And um, again, this is that, that, that light in the darkness, a woman just walking up past me and squeezing my shoulder as she walked past was the first time I ever realised that what my dad was doing to me was not okay. It's those, those, those people that take the time to just be like, I see you, I see you. They don't even have to do anything about it but they're like, I recognise it. It's so big. Um, but yeah, in terms of, in terms of, um, the rest of the system, I guess I had one, I had that one youth worker who really treated me like a human. Everybody else made me feel like a liar. Everybody else made me feel like a burden and a waste of their time and their effort and their resources. And I knew by looking at my, at the time, Doc's social worker that she was overstretched. A fourteen-year-old. I looked at her and I was like, "Well, this lady's not going to be able to help me," like, you know. And she couldn't. She could hardly spend any time with me. Everybody else in my refuge was her client as well. Like, she was completely overstretched. And and honestly, and it's still a motivation of mine where I'm like, I've always said like, I'm going to run that joint one day. I'm gonna I'm gonna run it. It's gonna I'm gonna get in it because I've always believed. If you want to complain about the system, then get in the system and change the system. Do something about it. So that's, that's why I'm here. That's why I'm running a, a home for kids in out-of-home care because I'm gonna change it. And I am already, which is pretty dope. I'm already changing it, so. So like on reflection, right, when I'm looking over the past maybe 10 years, 29 years of my journey, everything that I've gone through, it's, it's weird actually because I guess, you know, I'm, I'm almost 30, so we can talk in thirds. And for the first two thirds of my life, I was surrounded by people that were toxic for me. I was surrounded by disbelief of what I had gone through and, um, in terms of my mental health and any time that I wanted to explore that, it was somewhat shut down. Um, And over the past 10 years, I feel like I can't describe it other than since my friends, you know, pushed me to get help, since Black Dog gave me the opportunities that they have, I feel like I've lived for the last third of my life. For the first two thirds of my life I felt like I survived. And and now I guess I'm thriving, not surviving. You know? I I I actually participate in the world around me. And nobody controls this girl but this girl. Right? I am I am in charge of my life. And it used to be my dad, it used to be my ex. It used to be my diagnoses those things were all in charge and now it's me and and sometimes my depression or my PTSD or my anxiety might try to come in and be like "Ah, oh, no 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 we're we're in charge but it always comes back to me I'm always the one that ends up being in charge and that's that's really empowering um, my world now is a much more happier and hopeful and vibrant place. And when I have my moments, because I still do wonder if people believe me still, I have imposter syndrome. I don't know if I'm, I'm doing this podcast right now and I'm like, and should I be doing this? <laughs> like, But it's like, What's the evidence? Six, seven years of having people at my back supporting me. That's a long time. Like I said, it's the longest relationship, friendship, anything that I've had. Um, got to rely on that evidence when I go into my anxiety mode, my imposter syndrome mode. Got to rely on the evidence and where I'm at now is incredible. Um, and that's what I always just try to go back and focus on. And if I ever need anything, I just talk to my people because they're all there. I know that I could call up any one of my friends, colleagues from Black Dog at any point. They would be there straight away if I needed them. I can do that with my, my husband, my housemates. I can do that with any single one of my friends. And I think that's one of the biggest things that probably the past decade has taught me, and I say this a lot in my presentations. It's really important for everybody to ask their friends if they're okay, yeah? Reach out to the people around you. But, God, if I can give some advice to the people that are in it with, with the depression, your mask is working. You're really good at putting on the mask, And I know that cycle. I know what it's like to go out with the mask on and feel like you're not being seen and and nobody cares about you, but you're just really good at putting on the mask, dude. Try to talk to somebody too. Don't wait for them to ask if you're okay. Walk up to somebody that you love and say, I'm not doing all right. I need you. Let them in because they will be there for you. They just don't recognize it. Let people in. That's the biggest thing. Talk. It's okay to feel like crap. The majority of people around you do too. Let's talk about it. Like, it, it it releases that burden from you, just being able to reach out. And as soon as you reach out, then your friend knows and they will look at you and they will see that sad look in your eye and they will give you a hug because now they know and they want to support you. They want to be there for you. They love you, like, so let them in. Yeah.
0: listening. If there's been anything in this podcast that you have found distressing, don't forget to talk to your usual support person or call Lifeline on one three one 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 four. And if you'd like to hear more in the Being Well podcast series, you can find it on the Black Dog Institute website.